you find yourself needing to learn more about D&D. What do you do? I cast Pond! Welcome to iCast Pod, a D&D podcast about creating characters, taking chances, rolling dice, and having fun. I'm Mike, your DM and guide to all things Dungeon-esque and Dragony. I hope you're all well and not too stir-crazy for those of you that are self-isolating and social distancing. Hopefully you've had some extra time to play D&D or catch up on reading, prepping maps, etc. As for me, I'm currently off work and at home. My last session came just before the lockdown, and we're looking into doing our next session online. How have things affected you and your games? Drop me a line at icastpod at gmail.com to let me know. Alternatively, you can chat to me on our new Discord server. Search for icastpod or use the link in the show notes. I'll try to be there as much as possible, especially during the lockdown. In this episode, we're talking about dwarves, bards, soldiers, Beholders, and the legendary character Driz Doerden. So let's strap on our scimitars, pocket the statue of Guenevar, and get stuck in. Heard any good rumours lately? We're actually a little light on news this episode, although it's worth mentioning that the Explorer's Guide to Wildemount is now available, for those of you wanting to follow in the footsteps of the Mighty Nine, or just have some fun in that setting. Also, Funko are releasing D&D themed pops. Starting with Asmodeus, which is available now, we've also seen Minsk and Boo, a Mind Flayer, and a Gelatinous Cube, complete with Unfortunate Adventure, a skeleton inside. Off to the races! Dwarf! Beard, beards and braids. Mountain-dwelling, stocky humanoids with a love of mining and smithing. And always with a Scots accent for some reason. They are a staple of fantasy literature the world over and our second featured D&D race. Dwarves are famous for many things. Shortness of stature and temper, a stoutness of build and heart, and hardiness of constitution. Dwarves are hearty with famously strong stomachs and can create their own vitamin C so they can survive for long periods without fruits or vegetables. They are also resistant to many foodborne toxins, including alcohol which they have a huge tolerance for. They have long memories that often serve to keep track of the grudges they are currently holding. With an average lifespan of 400 years, they have plenty of time to make both friends and enemies, amass riches from the bowels of the earth, and create their masterwork. In D&D lore, the god Moradin first created the dwarves in his soul forge from iron, mithril, earth and stone, and placed them on many worlds. Moradin taught them to read stone and extract metal, taking their efforts as worship and teaching them to enchant their creations with magic. When a clan of dwarves tried to recreate life in their forges, Moradin became angry at their arrogance and cast the Dero race out, becoming the Dwergar, the dark dwarves that reside in the Underdark and are enemies of all goodly dwarves. Dwarves weather everything with their own brand of stoicism, changing little over centuries. They respect the traditions of their clans, including devotion to their gods. They extend this loyalty to their friends, and it would take a great slight to turn a dwarf from friend to enemy, for, although they may take offences at lesser slights, they rarely let those get in the way of a good friendship. 
Their stubbornness works in both directions in this way. They could remain loyal to someone long after everyone else has given up hope. Dwarves are also true to their word and see little profit in things like lying or even sarcasm. Here's what dwarves think of elves. It's not wise to depend on the elves. No telling what an elf will do next. When the hammer meets the ox head, they're as apt to start singing as to pull out a sword. They're flighty and frivolous. Two things to be said for them, though. They don't have many smiths, but the ones they do have do very fine work. And when orcs or goblins come streaming down out of the mountains, an elf's good to have at your back. Not as good as a dwarf, maybe. But no doubt, they hate the orcs as much as we do. Their ideals include industrious labour, skill in battle, and devotion to the forge. They love skill and artistry, particularly as it pertains to the creation of fantastic items, including weapons, armour, and jewellery. Some dwarves have been known to let this love corrupt into avarice. They hate all orcs and the orc god Grumsh, as well as Asmodeus, the king of hell. Dwarven kingdoms span entire mountain ranges, delving deep into the earth to reap the riches buried within. Whatever they can't make themselves, they trade, often with humans and halflings, who use waterways to trade dwarven goods, as the dwarves themselves dislike boats and to travel over water. Dwarves will often allow trustworthy members of other races into their halls, although that trust can be slow to build, and even then there will be areas considered off-limits. Like the Dragonborn discussed last episode, dwarves arrange themselves by clan, and being clanless is the worst fate that can befall a dwarf. Even dwarves that live far away from their clan cherish that affiliation and will be ready to regale anyone who will listen with stories about their clan and its accomplishments. Dwarves may take up adventuring for many reasons. They may wish to amass a personal wealth of treasure, for a specific or personal reason, or simply out of a desire to help others. Dwarves age at the same rate as humans, but are considered young until 50. Most are lawful, believing in the benefits of a well-ordered society, and tend towards the good end of the spectrum. Dwarf skin tones range from deep brown to pale tinged with red. They wear their hair and beards long in simple styles. Their hair colours are usually black, grey, brown or red. Stat block. Height 4 to 5 feet. Weight 150 pounds. Size medium. Speed is 25 feet which is unaffected by wearing heavy armour. They have dark vision to 60 feet. They have advantage on saving throws against and resistance to poison damage. They have proficiency with battle axe and hand axe, light hammer and war hammers. Tools are smiths, brewers or mason tools. They have a feature called stone cunning which means you can add double your proficiency bonus to history checks against masonry. Languages are dwarvish and common. There are two sub-races, hill dwarves and mountain dwarves. Hill dwarves gets a plus one to wisdom and your HP maximum gets a plus one increasing by plus one per level. Mountain Dwarf gets a plus two to strength and gets proficiency in light and medium armour. And just as an aside, the word dwarf is only one of three words in the English language to begin with the letters DW. Can you name the other two? Email me at icastpod at gmail.com with your answers. First correct answer gets a shout out on the next episode. 
you so classy? Bringers of tidings, levity and wisdom, bards are bearers of news. Traders in songs, story and gossip, and living repositories of history and folklore. Yeah, okay, I'm not doing any more of that. Bards chronicle events both large and small, from feats of valour to town hearsay. A bard can expect to exchange a few stories and or songs for a hot supper and lodgings, and in some places could be treated like a visiting dignitary. A noble might host a bard in extravagant style while ensuring the bard sees nothing that the noble doesn't want told and retold across the realm. Not all wandering performers are bards, as bards usually have a magical component to them, earning additional respect and accolades from powers that feed their performances. Typically flamboyant and glib of wit, the bard calls attention to themselves in order to gain a wider audience. The most famous bards are akin to pop stars, possibly crossed with well-known newscasters. You could make your bard take inspiration from one of your favourite rock stars and anchor people. Successful bards are known for at least one piece of performance art, usually a song or poem that is popular or catchy that has enraptured the populace. Although if your character is just starting out, it may be that your magnum opus lays ahead of you. Every bard is proficient in at least three musical instruments, sometimes more. Bards are also generally adept, often mastering skills they have a mind to learn. Far from being passive, many bards are able to equip themselves admirably in the melee, using their magic to bolster their already undeniable talent. Proficient with light armour and simple weapons, as well as long and short swords, rapiers and hand crossbows, a bard is a formidable addition to any team with spells like Thunder Wave for offence, as well as vicious mockery to take the sting out of your enemy's blows. They can spec well as a healer, with healing word coming immediately as a first-level spell. Bards use charisma as their spell-casting ability, which makes sense for a performer, and the PHB recommends dex as your secondary stat. One of your main mechanics is bardic inspiration, where you can inspire others through song or stirring oratory. This is done as a bonus action, so can be performed without penalty to your main action per turn. You choose one creature within 60 feet of you that can hear you, and they gain a bardic inspiration die, a d6 that they can use once within the next 10 minutes, and add that roll to an ability check, attack roll, or saving throw, but not to add to damage dice rolls. The inspired creature can wait until after the roll to declare if it is going to use the bardic inspiration die but it must declare it before the DM says whether the roll passes or fails. This makes it even more useful, as you won't go wasting it on an already good or great throw. A creature can only have one bardic inspiration die at a time. The bard can use this feature the number of times equal to their charisma modifier per long rest, but that should give you four or even five inspires between sleeps. At fifth level, you get all your uses back per long or short rest, with the Font of Inspiration feature. From second level, you can add half of your proficiency modifier rounded down to any ability check that you are not proficient in, proving again their adeptness at most things. You also gain the ability to use soothing music or oration to help heal during a short rest. Anyone in your party who can hear you and uses a hit die to recover hit points gets an additional 1d6 HP back. This ability scales as you level, becoming 1d8 at level 9, 1d10 at 13, and 1d12 at level 17. At third level, 
you choose a bardic college, a loose association of bards with similar interests that gather to trade information and melodies and to preserve their traditions. The PHB has colleges of law and valour which give variants of persuader and battle musician. The Sword Coast Adventurer's Guide has Fochluchen, which is allied with the Harpers, New Olam, which cultivates expressive musicians, and Of the Herald, which concerns its adepts with history, folklore and heraldry, naturally, as well as several more instruments of choice. And Xanathar's Guide to Everything has colleges of glamour whose disciples studied in the Feywild or under someone who did and can charm even the savage beasts of the land, the College of Swords, whose students are called Blades and who entertain through feats of knife juggling, sword swallowing and mock combat, and the College of Whispers, who appear as ordinary entertainers but are really spies using their invites to perform subterfuge, infiltration and extraction of secrets by charm, extortion and threats. Stat block. HP at first level is 8 plus your constitution modifier and then 1d8 plus constitution modifier for every level thereafter. Hit dice is 1d8 per level. Saving throws are charisma and dexterity. Skills you can choose any three and you have two cantrips and four spells known at first level with two spell slots. Background check. Soldier! Left, right, left, right, left, left. As a soldier, war is life. You may have enlisted young, been drafted, or joined up when other options seemed bleak. You knew the military would feed, clothe, and possibly educate you. And so it did in its own way. But it taught you what it needed, not what you wanted. Luckily, most of what your years in the military taught you is useful for a life of adventuring. You've been taught not only armour and weapon skills, but basic survival techniques too. Years of training and fighting have honed your athletics abilities. Your mind instantly shifts into strategic mode when faced with enemies. You carefully take note of every nuance of body language that might belie a weakness, a slight limp, a roll of a shoulder, the twitch of an eye. As a player, you get to decide, were you part of a standing army, a member of a mercenary militia, Part of a noble's private guard. How far did you progress? Were you a grunt or did you command your own platoon? Were you known for battlefield savagery or a brilliant tactical mind? Soldiers have proficiencies in athletics and intimidation, both of which can be very handy during the adventuring life. You also have proficiencies in one type of gaming set and land vehicles. You start with an insignia of your rank, a trophy taken from a fallen enemy, which could be a dagger, a broken blade, or a piece of a banner, a set of bone dice or a set of cards, common clothes, and a pouch containing ten gold pieces, which, oddly, is the same amount as the urchin that we covered last episode. You can roll a d8 to determine your role in your unit or army. Rolls in order from 1 to 8 are Officer, Scout, Infantry, Cavalry, Healer, Quartermaster, Standard Bearer, or support staff, which includes cooks and blacksmiths, etc. Your attained rank is recognised by other soldiers, current or former, from your organisation. It may be worth researching your rank so you know who would be either side of you. You can use your rank to exert influence over them if they are or were of a lower rank, requisition simple equipment or horses for temporary use, 
Or you could just laugh it off and claim, that was a long time ago, we're all just folk now. Your rank allows you to access friendly encampments and fortresses. My personal experience of military people is that they tend to be polite to everyone but forthright and don't suffer fools for long. They have a strict moral code and an upright bearing. They're used to situations where lives are on the line, so rarely sweat the small stuff, but they pay attention to the small details. They may stick to a strict routine. Perhaps your soldier tends to rise before everyone else, taking time to clean and oil their sword, check the straps of their armour for tears and nicks, generally maintain their equipment, or maybe do a round of practice drills. Soldiers know that skills and abilities need to be kept sharp as well as their weapons, as a sword is only as good as its bearer. Monster Menagerie The Beholder Originally a discussion about a nightmare foe by Thierry Kuntz that was overheard by Gary Gygax, The Beholder has been around since 1975 in the Greyhawk supplement. They come from the Far Realm, which is like H.P. Lovecraft's playground, where thoughts can become living entities corrupted by nightmares. Classed as a large aberration, Beholders are basically a floating head with a cycloptic eye set above a large fanged mouth. If that wasn't enough, several prehensile stalks, usually ten, extend from the upper part of their heads, each with an eye at the end that can grow back in a week if cut off. There's no altitude limit on floating either. They could float into space if they wanted. In fights, they tend to hover out of melee range and use their vast array of magical rays and anti-magic along with telekinesis. Almost every beholder is different though. Some are fleshy, or metallic, or even furry. Other variations include plates, tough hide, crustacean-like eye stalks or snake-like, segmented eyes, horns, and so on. Beholders are obsessed with themselves, showing narcissistic and psychopathic tendencies, and each think that they are the perfect beholder specimen, whatever features they possess. Hateful, aggressive and greedy, they are also massively xenophobic, even amongst other beholders with differing features, often leading to civil wars between beholders of different types, each believing themselves to be the pure version. Even a slight change in tone of skin is enough to spur violence between types. Many speculate that they could be the ruling race of the plains, such is their power if they ever manage to cast aside their inbuilt hatred of difference and unite. They are often prey to paranoia brought on by their belief that they are the epitome of their species and that all other inferior types and races are out to get them. Any change in their lair is seen as the work of enemies, and any adventurer who stumbles across one must be trying to kill them and take their treasures. Speaking of lairs, Beholders generally live in caves and chambers that they carve out with their disintegration rays, usually opting for vertically stacked rooms connected by long drops that allow the beholder to move easily while creating issues for earthbound creatures. They may keep collections of various types in their trophy rooms, including pieces of other beholders, petrified adventurers, treasures from battles won, and fantastic and magic items wrenched from the grasp of their conquests. They consider wealth and acquisitions to be equal to their status and never give anything away willingly. Some, often known as eye tyrants, have various other creatures like kobolds or bugbears in their thrall to patrol, keeping them in line with violent despotism. They also fill their homes with traps which they can avoid by floating above them. 
In fact, their paranoia coupled with their advanced intellect means they spend a lot of their time planning how to deal with any eventuality. What if someone tunnels in? What if they dig up from underneath? What if they storm the main entrance with an army of 10,000? The Beholder will have plans and provisions for all of these and many more scenarios. They are highly mobile, highly intelligent enemies who are always preparing for attacks. They hoard magical items to use in such circumstances, like magical bands that they use like rings on their eye stalks. They've also been known to use magical lenses. They can retreat into collapsing tunnels, set ambushes and use minions to tactical advantage. Their main weapons come from their eye rays which although magical require no spoken component. They can fire up to seven rays at any one time and can use more than one on a single target. Their eye ray effects include disintegration, sleep, petrification and they can even petrify water that an adventurer is stood in, death, charm, paralysis, fear, slowing, enervation which is negative energy and telekinesis which is so precise that they can use it to shake hands, push a button or throw a switch, usually to spring a gruesome and well thought out trap. In a current 5th edition game they can fire 1d4 rays per round and the rays are randomly determined. Even their main eye projects anti-magic up to 150 feet and they can focus this on a caster or healer rendering them useless in the fight. Their eyeballs are hard like stone. Their irises are made from interlocking crystal with lots of lenses, all capable of independent movement. They can reproduce in two ways. In earlier editions it was by growing a mass at the base of their tongue that contained infant beholders, which once the mass grew large enough, they vomited it up and the infants chewed their way out, disappearing quickly to avoid death by their siblings or parent. The other way is by dream manifestation. They can spontaneously create a new beholder from being locked into a powerful fantasy or nightmare, possibly even from narcissistically gazing at themselves in a mirror and kind of zoning out. If the new beholder spontaneously comes into being close to the original, a fight to the death will usually occur, but they can spawn up to a mile away, so sometimes both will just go about their business, possibly unaware of the other. They are fascinated by other beholders and may even dissect another beholder in order to learn more about themselves. They have no respect for each other but recognise the threat another poses. They eat raw meat, rodents, roast beef and flower petals. They like wine and blood but hate hard-boiled eggs and won't eat eyes. They can live to be up to 225 years old but generally meet a violent end. They can be found in Eberron, Underdark and other cavernous areas, such as under Waterdeep. Famous beholders include Xanatha, an information-gathering crime lord who resides beneath Waterdeep with its prized goldfish Silgar. Although Xanatha is more of a title than a name and the current Xanatha is called Zushax. And Large Luigi, an exceptionally intelligent and wise beholder, Luigi's quest for knowledge resulted in, in him becoming more neutral in his moral outlook and his death ray eye stalk changed to detect lie magic after his ascent of the spindle which showed him that the purpose of the beholder race was to learn and teach others. He was immediately considered persona non grata on the beholder disworld of Hathcatha and he eventually settled to run a tavern on the rock of Braal. 
His knowledge rivaled that of the gods, and he would happily share it with patrons, provided it did not harm the balance of good and evil overall, in return for a song or a story. Stat block. Beholders are four to five thousand pounds in weight. They have dark vision up to 120 feet, an AC of 18, and 180 hit points. They are a challenge rating of 13 with 10,000 XP. They have a plus 12 to perception, and their passive perception is 22. Their saving throws are intelligence plus 8, wisdom plus 7, charisma plus 8. Their languages are deep speech and undercommon. Law Academy The Sundering There are actually two Sunderings. Before either, Ao wrote the Tablets of Fate to ensure each god knew their role and responsibilities. Ao split the worlds of Toril and Abir apart, effectively Sundering them. When the planet was split, the Primordials and the Elemental Chaos went with Abir, and the Deities and Astral Plane went with Toril. In minus 17,600 DR, the first sundering happened when a group of High Elves tried to cast a ritual to create the Isle of Evermeet, which was to create a safe haven for Elves only. They channeled the weave, the spell was successful, and Evermeet rose from the sea, although the event caused destruction along the Sword Coast and lives were lost. The magic of this event created ripples in time, both forwards and backwards, connecting not only with the initial sundering of Toril and Abir, but with the second sundering that was yet to come. In the time of troubles, the Tablets of Fate were stolen, so that some gods could alter their responsibilities and portfolios set by Ao. And as a result, Ao cast the gods out to walk Faerun, as I mentioned in last episode's section on the Spell Plague, with whole sections of one planet appearing on the other. Ao recreated the Tablets of Fate and separated Toril and Abir again, but over a slower period this time. Major earthquakes and volcanoes erupted over the surfaces of both planets. A great rain fell for over a year over the Sea of Stars, putting the water levels back to pre-Spell Plague levels. Chasms opened during the Spell Plague were restored back into landmass. Ships appeared in ports that had set sail from continents that had been lost, and the goddess Mystra returned not for the first time. By the end of the second sundering, most of the effects of the spell plague had been reversed, including returning the Isle of Evermeet to Toril, several deities that were thought to be dead returned, including Azuth, who was freed by Asmodeus. The cosmology changed back to the Great Wheel model from the World Axis version, but kept the Feywild, Shadowfell and Elemental Chaos. Essentially, the second Sundering was a huge retcon to reverse many of the elements of 4th edition that players hated. The Infamous Driz Doerden Love him or hate him, you can't deny that the Drow deserves a spot on the Infamous. One of the best-known characters in the D&D multiverse, the Dark Elf Ranger, along with his spirit companion, the powerful panther Guinevar, has appeared in over 30 novels on almost double figures in video games, including the upcoming Dark Alliance game. Drizzt originally started out as a sidekick for Wolfgar the Barbarian in The Crystal Shard, the first of the Icewind Dale trilogy of books by R.A. Salvatore. Salvatore famously came up with the idea of Drizzt during a phone call in 1987 with Mary Kirchhoff, who was then the managing editor of TSR's book department. 
Kirchhoff asked Salvatore if he could rewrite his submitted manuscript, which eventually became the novel Echoes of the Fourth Magic to be set in the Forgotten Realms. Salvatore picked a spot in the far north and located Icewind Dale there. Drizzt filled a gap when Kirchhoff told Salvatore that they could not use one of his characters. Off the top of his head, Salvatore proposed a dark elf. Kirchhoff was reportedly sceptical, but relented as Drizzt was only going to be a sidekick. When Kirchhoff asked the character's name, Salvatore replied, Drizzt Dowerden, and when Kirchhoff asked him to spell it for clarification, Salvatore replied, not a chance. Salvatore later stated in an interview, I don't know where it came from. I guess that Gary Gygax just did such an amazing job creating drow elves that something about them got stuck in the back of my head. Salvatore credits the Lord of the Rings Aragorn as an influence, along with Darith from Dark Walker on Moonshay, and calls him the classic romantic hero. Misunderstood, holding to a code of ideals even when the going gets tough, and getting no appreciation for it most of the time. It's this code of ideals that sets Drizzt apart from most drow who live in the underdark city of Menzo Baranzan, in matriarchal societies that revere murder and subterfuge under the guidance of the spider queen goddess Lolth. Drizzt is of the House Doerden, a familial group akin to a clan. From an early age, Drizzt harboured a dislike of drow ways and society that would eventually fester into hatred and his eventual escape from the underdark. In this, he takes after his father, Zachnafane the weapons master of the house who trains Drizzt in ways both martial and philosophical. During a night raid against the surface elves, Drizzt finds the wanton slaughter distasteful and instead of killing an elf child, secretly helps it to escape. This leads to the ritual sacrifice of Zachnafane in Drizzt's stead when the deception is uncovered in order to appease the bloodthirsty Spider Queen. Then during a war with another house for status, Drizzt escapes into the Underdark to live alone away from the enforced cruelty of drow society. It is around this time that he comes into possession of a small onyx statuette of a panther, a figurine of wondrous power that summoned Guenevar from the astral plane. Drizzt and Guenevar had met and worked together before Drizzt became owner of the figurine, and built up a trust and friendship during this time. While Drizzt was being instructed in the arcane arts by Massage Hunet, when Massage the then owner of Guenevar's statue directs the panther to kill Drizzt, Guenevar resists the magical command and ultimately saves Drizzt instead. Drizzt returned to Massage and told him he would spare his life in return for the statue. When he refused, Drizzt and Guenevar teamed up to kill Massage and Alton de Vere. Famous for his dual-wielded scimitars Icing Death and Twinkle, Drizzt fights for justice generally favouring the underdog and those who desire to live in peace. His ebon skin and white hair is typical of the drow, while his lavender eyes are not. His appearance in the main world lead to distrust from most he encountered due to the heartless and savage reputation of the drow. Drizzt would shoulder this burden, understanding why people would treat him with this suspicion, until he met Montolio de Bruschi, who taught him the ways of the ranger, it is during this phase that he decides to accept the goddess of rangers, Mialiki, as his personal patron. Drizzt has given readers and players many adventures, fighting wizards, drow and dragons, and allowed an insight into both the world of the drow and into racial issues within the Forgotten Realms. The latest Drizzt book, Timeless, is available now from HarperCollins. And that's it for today's episode. Thanks very much for listening. 
If you'd like to get in touch, I'd love to hear your thoughts. You can email me at icastpod at gmail.com or find me on the Discord channel or find us on Twitter or Instagram as icastpod. I create all the content you see and hear on the show and social media, except for some of the sound effects which come from Sirenscape, because great games require great sounds. Check the show notes for the link. If you'd like to help support the show, there are ways to do that. Firstly, subscribe to the show. Secondly, leave us a review on iTunes if you're a user. Reviews there really help the show get heard by new fans. Lastly, tell anyone you know who is into D&D about the show. Thanks. Until next time, friends. Stay safe, and may Timora bless your endeavours.